Kia ora koutou and welcome to New Zealand Anesthesia, the podcast linking Aotearoa anaesthetists with what's going on across the motu and beyond. I am Dr Morgan Edwards, the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists Vice President, and it is a pleasure to host the NZSA's first ever podcast. Whether at work, in your office, your commute or out in the fresh air, we hope that you find it an insightful and informative listen. We are really excited to embark on this new communication channel and have plans for more podcasts throughout the year and beyond. Our episodes will keep you updated on what we're doing on your behalf, the latest news and research from the anaesthesia community, and we will also delve into topics such as well-being to provide you with the support you need to live your best life. So let's get started with a look back on 2021, a look forward to 2022 and beyond, and updates on two key areas, the AUT perioperative practice degree and what's going on in sustainability and the environment. Now, I joined the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists as a trainee rep in 2015 and have never left. After watching progress under the incredible leadership of Dr. David Kibblewhite, Dr. Catherine Hagen, and now Dr. Sheila Hart, it is with great humility and pride that I find myself as Vice President. I think of the NZSA as the quiet soldier, working tirelessly in the background, advocating for the anaesthetic community, fostering connections, and ensuring that our voice is heard. One of my favourite components are our networks, fostering connections with anaesthetists throughout the motu and helping strengthen our fantastic anaesthetic community. It is my immense pleasure to now introduce Dr Sheila Hart, New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists President, and to welcome her as the first guest for this podcast. Sheila is the Deputy Clinical Director at Wellington Hospital, and I think no one will disagree that this has been a particularly challenging year as our hospitals have geared up for responding to COVID, planning, protocols, etc. Anxiety about the ability of our system to cope, including ICU, in which anaesthetists play an instrumental role, but also also the uncertainty and disruption that COVID has caused for everyone, including the NZSA. However, the NZSA has continued to thrive, and this includes increasing its membership and starting to work on some new initiatives. So welcome, Sheila. Thank you, Morgan. Yes, we've continued to see membership on the rise, which is really an endorsement of the work the NZSA has been doing and the strong anaesthesia community we're building. We currently have 746 members. Unfortunately, most membership-based organisations throughout the world are struggling to maintain membership, so we are always looking at ways that we can offer value to our members. There have been many positives this year, and I'm keen to give members an update. But I'd like to first begin by acknowledging the incredible hard work of all of our members in preparing their hospitals to respond to COVID. Most recently, we set up a COVID network, and just like our other networks, anaesthetists are represented from across our DHBs. They are sharing information with each other, offering guidance and providing connections and support. It is clear a lot of work is happening at our hospitals with anaesthetists at the forefront. It has been also been an especially challenging time for our Auckland members with protracted lockdown and looking after the majority of our COVID patients. Oh yes, I totally agree. Although as we've gotten further into this Omicron surge, the rest of the centres across the motto are getting more than their fair share as well. As I was doing the introduction, I remember you telling the NZSA exec at the first meeting that you chaired about how you first joined the executive and the talk of the presidency came up almost immediately. Yes, well, I can uh, thank Dr. Kibberwhite for that. Um, so not long after I joined the NZSA executive, in fact, 
even before I joined the executive on the first introductory conversation I had with um, the current chair, then David Kibblewhite, he told me I could be a future president. I didn't think that that was likely as I was still getting my head around the end of the day work. However, here I am and David's words were more prescient than I could have ever imagined. I did have a lot of support along the way from David and Catherine Hagen when she was president and I became vice president. When you talk to new executive members, one of the most common things you hear is that they are so impressed and somewhat surprised by the sheer volume and diversity of work that the New Zealand Society of Anistis does. And that's exactly how I felt when I joined. Having just returned from my fellowship and not long out of training, it was a side of anaesthesia that I had yet to experience. The organisation may seem small from the outside, but the level and impact of activity is extensive, such as advocacy on legislation, organising conferences, and sharing information such as practice protocols across our networks. The reason we can do this is because of the dedication and generosity of our members, so many of which volunteer their time whether to sit on the executive, on subcommittees, and on our networks, or who write, present and give us feedback. Everyone is busy and cramming as much activity into their lives as possible, yet they're taking the time to give back to the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists and their profession. I really value that commitment, as does the executive and the NZSA staff. We never take it for granted. We have strong communication platforms to convey all the work to members, our publications, social media, website, etc. But it can be a challenge to get get across just all of what is going on. However, if you read um, a copy of the magazine, for example, you will see the contribution anaesthetists are making to the specialty, the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists, patient care, the wider health system improvements. And you get the sense uh, that anaesthetists are just working together in a unified way, being collegial and supportive of each other. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience with our obstetric network, NOAA, which I've been part of since its inception. The networks have been a real game changer for the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists and actually I think the anesthesia community of Aotearoa New Zealand as a whole. So looking at 2021, the NCDSA executive set some priorities at the beginning of the year and it would be really good to hear how you think we have progressed on these. We set ourselves some key um, some key priorities. Uh, one was to settle in the new office staff, which I'll talk about shortly. We also wanted to develop some cultural um, integration, improve our engagement, work with the national committee and look at sustainability. So our first priority was to settle in the new office staff. As many of you will know, Renu uh, left last year after almost nine years as a CEO um, and Michelle Thomas joined us. She joined in April from Hospice New Zealand. She has been incredibly active and proactive um, since joining us in that t- at that time. And that includes putting together robust policies and processes to strengthen how the New Zealand society runs, from governance through to financial management. Her wealth of experience is fantastic and her energy. She has really um, overhauled our office and brought an, a, a fresh enthusiasm. She's had 180 meetings um, already with key stakeholders. She's exploring alternative revenue streams in, um, in the face of many of our events having been postponed or cancelled due to COVID and therefore the need to change our model of revenue. We're so delighted uh, with, the, with the impact that Michelle has had uh, on joining our team. We also welcomed uh, Rebecca Nodwell. Um, she's joined as our PA, um, executive PA and networks administrator. Again, she has lots of good ideas and initiatives. She is very uh, tech savvy. She put all of our um, executive uh, and networks onto a new IT platform, which easily enables us to share information and talk. And of course, I could not talk about our office staff without mentioning Daphne Atkinson, our communications manager, and Lynn Mulderwood, our membership manager, who have been with us for some time 
have great institutional knowledge and they assure ongoing enthusiasm for their roles. The second priority was a significant shift, but an overdue one, which was to develop a plan to integrate the principles of Te Tiriti o Waitangi into the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists and its activities. We have begun this process with the development of a treaty policy statement. This was put together with consultants Jim Berry and Sherry Ratapu Foster, who will be running an eight-week Tikanga training course for the New Zealand Society early uh, this year. We also want to ensure the more Māori representation and input. We have a very long way to go. This is just the beginning, but it's about growing our values in the right direction. This impacts cultural safety and competence and health equity. It's all tied in. It's a long-term process, but we have made the first important steps. The third priority was connecting both with our members, but also looking at how we might engage more with those need and needing anaesthesia care and our, improving our resources for patients. In 2017, we did a member survey and it was clear that our work was valued, but members expressly said we needed to engage more and there's been a concerted effort to do this ever since. Yes, and a key aspect of this has been visiting hospital anaesthesia departments so that we can connect with our members. How has this expanded over the years? Well, we set a target of visiting each hospital department at least every two years, and we were meeting this target. It's a win-win. We get to talk to members about the work we're doing and to ask them their main issues and concerns. It encourages real dialogue. We reach members and non-members who, of course, we hope will see the value of becoming a member. Executive members share the responsibility of doing these visits and giving a talk, but the most valuable aspect is the Q&A that follows and the ongoing conversations. Last year, we visited anaesthesia departments in North Shore, Tauranga, Palmerston North, Wairarapa, Wellington, Blenheim, Dunedin and Timaru, and then finally Gisborne at the end of the year. These visits are a great opportunity to connect with our members and we are planning a full calendar of visits for this year. In addition to these visits, I think the engagement has come from the networks, which are an amazing touch point. We have our obstetric network, a paediatric, airways, inpatient pain, environmental and sustainability, and most recently the COVID networks, as we mentioned earlier. On top of this, we do try and seek members' views regularly, such as asking for input into submissions and doing member surveys. Our End of Life Choice Act survey had by far the biggest response to an NZSA survey ever, and it provided real clarity as to what our members expected of us. The fourth priority was to ensure we had a strong, active voice alongside ANSCA National Committee and ANSCA on important issues that affect our members. Members have told us in surveys that most view advocacy as our key role. We have used our voice to express our views on a range of issues from, from for example, the Pharmac model, right through to pharmacists prescribing it on neuromuscular blocking agents. But the two issues that have taken up the most time um, this year was the End of Life Choice Act, with assisted dying becoming legal on the 7th of November last year and of course uh, the imminent health system reforms. Yes, well, and with the health system reforms, we are on the precipice of major transformation of our health sector that will affect all of us from clinicians to patients. Firstly, what does the H&D review aim to do and what are some of the key changes? It's a significant and dramatic overhaul of our health system. It includes disestablishing the current DHB model and therefore all DHBs, with health activities taken over by a new crown entity, Health NZ and the Māori Health Authority. Fundamentally, at the heart of the reforms that uh, the aims are laudable is to ensure greater consistency of healthcare services throughout the country. This will hopefully ensure less variability according to where you live in terms of access, treatment and outcomes. We already know that outcomes are inequitable, especially for Māori and Pacific. 
we need stronger centralisation and oversight to fix the problem. In terms of inequity and Māori, the Crown needs to meet its obligation under the treaty. We generally need to work with Māori in partnership, enabling a Māori for Māori approach. And what are you hearing from colleagues about the reforms? Are people feeling optimistic? I think it's fair to say that people are cautiously optimistic, but there is some anxiety about what it will what it will mean, how it will affect our working lives and our patients, for example. The NZSA did a submission on the bill which provides the legal framework for these new organisations, which also includes a new public health agency and an iwi Māori partnership uh, board incorporated into those. I think our biggest concern at present is there are a lot of details and information that in that bill, well, more importantly, that were not in that bill. So lots of details that are missing that really doesn't tell us exactly how or what is going to, this is going to look like come July the 1st. There's still many questions to answer. The government has promised ongoing engagement and that will be essential. A key point we made along with many other health organisations is that you need a strong clinical governance framework to drive all these reforms, whether at Health NZ or locally, and you need clinical input from the beginning. It wasn't clear in the bill that this was to be the case. The last thing we want is for the changes, which will be disruptive and costly, to not lead to meaningful change in health outcomes. It can't just be rearranging the deck chairs and new entities with the same results. There will be anxiety about what changes will actually mean on a day-to-day basis. The NZSA's strength is that it can easily tap into member views, be in touch with its stakeholders to collaborate and provide feedback to help shape the reforms. We can respond quickly, but in a considered way. And speaking of the End of Life Choice Act, and it was a lot of mahi for the NZSA last year, what was the NZSA's role in relation to this? The End of Life Choice Act was a momentous shift in our health system and the New Zealand Society took a neutral stance as we knew our members would have different views. When we wrote our initial submission, it was focused on key legal aspects to protect patients and strongly advocating for the rights of conscientious objection. From our member survey, it was clear members wanted us to keep them informed of the Act and implementation. A major concern expressed by members was the right to conscientiously object, so we reassured members that this was part of the legislation. We shared Ministry of Health resources, including learning modules that all medical practitioners needed to undertake. We were also asked to be involved in overseeing the implementation to to ensure this was robust. And I was part of a stakeholder engagement group that contributed to this. I wrote a number of blogs for members on the topic. We met with the team at the Ministry of Health implementing the Act to ask questions. And we will still keep an eye on the End of Life Choice Act as it becomes more routine in our medical practice. Certainly there are strict parameters around this service and the HDC has made it clear that it will uphold the patient code of rights in relation to this. Our final priority was to look at how we could make our organisation more environmentally friendly and operate in a more sustainable way. We used a company called Green Start to assess our organisation and make recommendations on what we could be doing better. We achieved an excellent baseline result, but we'll definitely be tackling one of our uh, biggest sources of emissions, those related to travel. And of course, when I talk about sustainability, I have to include the sustainability of of our organisation, the New Zealand Society of Anistis. We're only as strong as our member base, so I do encourage you to support the society by becoming a member if you're not already. And our society would not be able to function without those who volunteer to do the mahi on the executive committee. With increasing pressures on our time, giving some of our upper roles such as this becomes increasingly challenging. So a big thank you to all on the executive committee. As previously mentioned, your time and efforts are really appreciated. And if any of those out there listening want to get involved, do get in touch. Thank you so much for your time, Sheila. 
Now, one of the incredibly exciting developments that's going on in our profession pertains to our esteemed anaesthetic technician colleagues as we watch the very exciting commencement of their new course in anaesthetic technology qualification. As you may know, they're currently undergoing the transition from their current diploma to a new degree course offered by AUT. It has been championed by the New Zealand Anaesthetic Technician Society and it has taken a large amount of work to get to this point. So now we are joined by Mike Smith, who is the Program Leader for Perioperative Practice at AUT. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Morgan. Really excited to be here. Could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about you and your background and how you came to be the program leader, first of anaesthetic technology and now perioperative practice at AUT? Uh, my background is as an operating department practitioner. Um, I trained in Leicester in the UK and I moved to New Zealand uh, eight years ago now as a anaesthetic technician. And I actually first became involved with uh, the education of ATs as a marker, actually, in a casual role back in 2018. And then over the years became more responsible for the content of the program. And as I was uh, completing my master's in 2020, the opportunity to take on the program leader role came up. So it's been an incredibly rewarding, actually, to be part of this project and I think what's uh, most rewarding is to see how the different groups have come together to make positive change here. To now be at the point of implementation this year after all of the years of development, uh, we're really excited to have students involved in this program. And I think it's a great reflection of everyone's hard work. Yeah, well, 2022 is a really exciting year for you, isn't it? We've got the first intake of students into the newly minted uh, Bachelor of Health Science and Perioperative Practice. Congratulations. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the degree program? Yeah, so we've really pushed to be innovative here and to be forward thinking and progressive and, and not only for the profession, um, also for the future of New Zealand's perioperative services, because I think we, we know that health systems are very complex. Uh, the demands on services, are they're only increasing, as particularly in perioperative and anaesthetic services, they're continuously growing. And we see it right across the health system that healthcare teams are burning out. I mean, none more so than operating room departments. And I think the obviously the national AT shortage, which we see, is only exacerbating that. So we needed to create a degree which could address these issues. So we needed a program which could provide uh, greater graduating numbers, one which actually enabled employers to increase their ability to provide services, but also for our graduates to actually have parity in the health system with other, other health professions so that there was much more accessible routes for career growth and further academic study. And I think all of these things are what are contributing to the conversations around flexible roles and, and workforces. I think the problem really has been around the deployment. That's been a limiting factor. So some of the key changes which we'll see for ATs as the degree comes through are that we're removing the employment barrier to training positions, which has yeah, limited our graduate numbers over the years. The programme will be accessible New Zealand wide because we want students from all over New Zealand to have access to health degrees, so you don't have to be Auckland-based. And we are really maximising the full scope of practice here. So then employers can 
use this new knowledge and skill set based on the nature of the role and the requirements of their individual departments. So we've really tried to listen to the sector here, and I think we've now have a, a really innovative and contemporary program, which will help to address some of the issues we see today, but actually also meet some of the future needs of uh, New Zealand's proactive services. Yeah, and that's wonderful. Um, and I think that one of the things I personally found really interesting and eye-opening throughout this whole process was realising just how necessary it was for that previous diploma to change to a degree-level qualification to actually appropriately recognise the knowledge and skills of our anaesthetic technicians, but like you're alluding to, also enable future growth for the workforce moving forward. And so... Obviously, you think that this new degree is going to be able to achieve that and help to bridge that shortage of ATs. Absolutely. I mean, from a shortage perspective, we're simply not meeting demand. Uh, operating lists are being cancelled and admittedly not just from an AT, uh, from AT shortages. Um, but that demand is only increasing. I, I think every department we speak to is either building a new operating theatre or has plans to do so. Uh, the northern region alone requires a, an extra 40 operating theatres over the next 20 years. So the issue has been that students have had to fight for a, a limited number of training positions. And it's been great financially if you can get it. But we know there's a whole pool of students out there who want access to health careers. And they're just simply being precluded because of that employment requirement. And then I think from a uh, careers perspective, the ones that have been lucky enough, I believe we're actually doing them a real injustice with actually preparing them for successful health careers in the long run, when, especially when we compare them to other entry-level qualifications for other health professions. So we know we can do much more here to help graduates really thrive here. So this program is ultimately about looking beyond just clinical skills. We know allied health is really starting to emerge now. Um, and taking on leadership roles. And it's our responsibility to actually lead and prepare the next generation of ATs for a lot of those challenges which they're going to face, you know, so that they can become managers, educators, researchers, uh, and they can really lead in this space. And I've also heard a lot of talk about the, the flexible workforce. Can you tell me a bit more about how the degree is going to be supporting that? Yeah, so we, we know health professionals that don't always remain in the same area that they train. So where there's shared competencies between health professions, we're then teaching those shared competencies within shared courses or what we used to term papers. So for those that want to retrain, we then have much more efficient pathways because they've already demonstrated that competence. They don't need to restart a training program. Now, in the operating room space, there's obviously a lot of shared competence, particularly with nurses uh, and paramedicine just thinking about airway skills, uh, patient assessment, resuscitation skills, uh, but also not just clinical skills. So things like clinical reasoning and uh, health law that actually underpin our practice. We don't see enough nurses and paramedics coming through because they simply can't access training positions. I mean, wouldn't it be great to see nurses and paramedics actually coming through this program, offering different perspectives, um, supporting the development of anesthesia and preoperative services, creating safer environments, but for them, they simply can't gain access to being an AT. So ultimately, the net result is if we can design degrees in this way, it, it really has the potential to start addressing some of those uh, inequitable health outcomes, particularly in rural settings, because we can have health professionals who have a much greater capacity to practice because they can hold dual registration 
And I think in today's current climate of, of COVID and any future ongoing pandemics, if we can have health professionals working across the system and retrain if required much more efficiently, it will, it will help to prevent systems from actually uh, being crippled. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know that it was also identified really early on that in addition to addressing shortages in the AT workforce, it was also a priority to have a more diverse AT workforce. Did this goal contribute to the decision to be based at AUT's Manukau campus? In part, yes. I mean, there's um, a lot of employers out there who have done a lot of great work in this space with increasing diversity within their own anesthetic assistant workforce. And we're not discrediting that great work, but I think on a national scale, we simply don't have voices in the technician community, which are representative of New Zealand's population. So being based at AUT South in Manukau, uh, it does support easier access to the university. Um, a lot of, you know, help to minimize some of those costs with travel and accommodation. And we actually already see uh, proof of this. Um, I think last semester alone within our BHSC pathways, uh, Maori and Pacifica enrollments combined made up for almost a third of all of the enrollments. And this alongside um, fees-free study for first years, for example, and scholarships both inside and outside of AUT is really supporting students to access health careers now. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and you alluded to it earlier, but there's also, um, as well as being um, in person at, at the South Campus at Manukau, there's also the option for online and distance learning for this, isn't there? So that's really going to help facilitate um, regional trainees. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't need to be Auckland-based to complete this program. All of the courses have been designed with online learning options because, again, we know that there are a lot of potential students out there who want access to health degrees, but for family reasons, work commitments, financial reasons, they simply can't leave their hometown and they can't access university study. And obviously this you know, limits their career options. So with this model, we want to make it as accessible as possible, more so than it's ever been. So yes, yeah, students can either be on campus in Auckland or complete this uh, regionally. And I've got two questions that I think um, I wouldn't be in any stress if I didn't ask you. The first one is, um, there's, can you tell me about the planning around a fellow year? Is there going to be a fellow year? In short, no. Uh, we've been very supportive of the sector through this transition. So our last diploma cohort will graduate at the end of uh, 2023. And then our first degree cohorts will come through in 2024. and. The exciting part about this actually is that we, we know we need to grow this program rapidly to address that shortage. So we'll be offering a, a dual intake into this program. So mid-year and end-year, there'll be two cohorts of graduates coming through from 2024. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, and then the last one is, how do you think that the perioperative practice graduates are going to differ from our current very impressive anaesthetic technician workforce? I mean, I'd agree with you there. I've been obviously involved with the diploma since 2018, um, as well as having involvement with the professional organisation. So I've seen firsthand that we should absolutely be proud of our current workforce. How they'll differ is a great point because the scope of practice isn't changing here. But what the degree allows is it's an opportunity to offer a, a more consistent skill set to these graduates across the full scope of practice. So. Instead of training in silos within a congested diploma, 
where we weren't maximizing the scope, we can now ensure that graduates have a wider clinical skill set, including expanded scopes, and then employers have professionals with the skills that they need to run their services more efficiently. And that's the biggest opportunity here. It's not a comparison between the current and the new. It's about how we can future-proof against the challenges which operating rooms will face in the coming years. And I think actually at the centre of this isn't actually a single profession. It's ultimately about uh, what benefits the patient and our communities and New Zealand's health system, because ultimately I think we're all patient outcome driven. Yeah, and I think that's a really fantastic point to end on. And thank you so much for joining us. I know that um, I speak on behalf of New Zealand anaesthesia and the anaesthetic community in saying that we're really excited for these graduates. And we're also excited to support these students as they come come through our hospitals in the coming years, both in public and perhaps in private and in a diverse range of centres throughout the country rather than the traditional main centres where they've been based. Um, and then, of course, 2024 and beyond when we've got um, work, working alongside graduates. Um, so thank you so much for your time, Mike, and all the best. And now on to a subject incredibly dear to all of our hearts, the environment and sustainability. The health sector has a significant carbon footprint, about 3-8% to of a country's total emissions, according to the UK and US estimations. This is due to the sector's purchasing and operations. Emissions are generated by hospital heating, ventilation and cooling, other building energy uses such as 24-hour devices, lighting, computers, waste, health-related travel, and throughout the whole procurement pathway of products used in hospitals such as pharmaceuticals and devices. The healthcare sector's mandate is to protect and restore health, yet the paradox is that the delivery of healthcare services, most notably in hospitals, often undermines this mandate. Reducing New Zealand's carbon footprint and taking a lead on environmental sustainability will improve people's health, lead to major health cost savings, and can improve health equity. It really is a circular win-win. The New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists Environmental and Sustainability Network aims to reduce the carbon footprint of healthcare and to mitigate climate change. The network harnesses the amazing knowledge, passion and leadership of New Zealand anaesthetists committed to environmental sustainability. Many have taken a very proactive role in their own hospitals and DHBs and they are very happy to share information on how they have reduced the carbon footprint of health in their workplace. Dr Rob Burrell, who I'm sure many of you will know, is a consultant anaesthetist at County's Manukau DHB and is the chair of the network. Since its formation, the network has played an invaluable role in helping to inform the NZSA's advocacy on sustainability, including submissions such as for the Zero Carbon Bill. They also write a regular column for the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists magazine and have covered a diversity of topics such as carbon offsetting and the disposal of drugs and minimising waste. Rob has been invited to speak at conferences and was one of the presenters at last year's visiting lectureships. Welcome, Rob, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Hi, Morgan. What a really nice introduction. Thank you. 
So environmental sustainability, it's a challenging area. The work that needs to be done is urgent and we have a lot of ground to make up after years of inaction. However, there is genuine commitment from many, including many amongst our profession, such as yourself, and certainly within the network to affect change. Let's start at the beginning with your own personal journey. How did you first become aware of environmental sustainability and climate change? And what were the issues you saw in your own DHB that motivated you? to spearhead change? Um, my mum was always a bit of a greenie, um, Forest and Bird Society member, um, that sort of thing. And um, I guess we've supported Greenpeace for a long time now. Somewhere, somewhere along we're a long way back is the environmental thing, I think. I, I do remember the, um, the hockey stick in about 2000 or 1999, um, a bunch of climatology scientists, including a guy called Michael Mann, produced a paper that had a, a temperature curve of climate for the last thousand years. And it was a sort of a long straight thing with a, a sudden sharp hook at the end of it, like a, an ice hockey stick. And I can remember people trying to rubbish him to um, put the data down to generally kind of try and deflect what it was saying. And what it was saying was life's been pretty sweet for the last thousand years, people. But if you don't do something really fast, it's going to become pretty ugly. So 20 years ago, and I had small children 20 years ago, they will always be, I suppose, a good reason to do something is to try and make a better world for your children rather than a worse one. Yeah, and that's such a poignant reflection. And I notice in the media yet another new piece, this time in Australia, about the government sadly winning an appeal against a ruling that it has a duty of care to protect children from harm caused by climate change. It comes on the back of dozens of examples across the world of children echoing exactly what you've just said, really. And now a little bit closer to home, can you tell me some of the main initiatives at your own DHB, Counties Manico, to reduce the carbon footprint for healthcare delivery? Sure. Um, the best thing that they've ever done is to employ a sustainability officer. And uh, they chose extraordinarily well in about 2014, I guess, a lady called Debbie Wilson. She was an ICU nurse and uh, she wanted to do a PhD in sustainability change. So they had this really cool lady who was a great connector at helping people with little plans in one place, join up with some other people with some small plans in another place and make you all feel good that you're on a team doing the right thing together. She ran the program and started organizing the measurements and we all came from different parts of the hospital, ICU and radiology and the food people and surgeons and anesthesia and all these people and, and we're all kind of encouraged to get on and do what we could do. Uh, Debbie managed to get the DHB to invest in actually measuring, so signing up to something that was called CMARS back then but is now called Toy2, who they will come to your organization, look at your energy bill and all these other things and uh, measure your carbon footprint and give you a certificate. And if you reduce your carbon footprint, it's a nice certificate. Um, and she came up with reports that would show where, where our problems were. Now, in the early years, and even now, if you look at DHB carbon footprints, they're measuring not all scopes of emissions. The number they come up with is not a total. Reality is that the carbon footprint is half a dozen times bigger. We only measured the small, easy part. And the hard part is all of the scope three emissions, which is all of the junk, all the stuff we use at work that we 
use once and throw in the rubbish. Well, all that stuff came from somewhere else on a ship, probably went through a dozen countries. Um, what is it? The uh, Blue Inco sheet, I think, passes through 11 different countries. So by the time we use it, it actually has a huge mileage or embedded carbon footprint. If you can reduce your waste, which is what Debbie managed to help us do, and do things in your own sphere. So for, for us, it was volatile management, I suppose. Everybody played their, their part. The next best thing after appointing someone to, to conduct the orchestra is about appointing some people to do some jobs that don't otherwise get done, an energy manager. An energy manager is somebody that will install some metering for you <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, let you learn where the electricity is going so you can figure out how the heck you're going to turn it off from time to time. And how does that compare to other DHBs? Are there sustainability officers in every DHB across the country? I think there are about 14 DHBs with sustainability officers, sustainability managers. And when you meet these people, they're really cool people. I don't think you can get very far without one because it's just you alone, or that's how it feels, is individuals chipping away at the system, trying to fix something that is so obviously broken. And nobody can ever find the right person in the hospital that, that says, we're going to stop doing this and we're going to start doing that. You know, you want to change the teaspoons in the tea room. You're sick of the plastic teaspoons. You're really pissed off with the teaspoons and you want change that. Who do you find who says, I buy the teaspoons, I'll buy the metal teaspoons, I'll get them engraved so they don't get stolen, and I promise never to buy plastic teaspoons ever again. If you can find a person like that, and every now and then you do, it's it's awesome, but it is, it's great to have people whose full-time job it is to, to help make those things tick over, because you and I, actually, we should probably be doing what we're best at, which I think is probably still giving anesthetics rather than you know fixing the teaspoon problem. <laughs> yes, and that's sort of where, as an anaesthetist at a national level, that's where the network comes in, right? The Environmental and Sustainability Network, chaired by you, has been so proactive in its advocacy, especially on submissions I already mentioned and others such as waste minimisation. Do you think that Aotearoa is making good progress overall on climate change? I mean, we had the Milestone Zero Carbon Bill, the government's carbon neutral programme for the public sector. But as a country, do you think we've done things well or do you think we're lagging behind? How do, how do I answer that? So, well, yeah, no, isn't it? It's, it's yeah and nah. If we were doing really well, we wouldn't be obsessing about petrol prices because we wouldn't be driving around in cars or there wouldn't be petrol cars. Um, if we were doing really well, we'd all be taking public transport or riding our e-bikes or taking the underground or doing something that wasn't sitting in a car. You know, we knew about this 20 years ago, really, and we've put it off and we've put it off and we've put it off. The, the carbon neutral government program, I think, could be awesome. It doesn't kick in until the end of 2025. So we're really not trying very hard, very fast. That's healthcare and education and stuff, but healthcare is the biggie. Trying to get organized within healthcare is a bit hard. But our biggest problem really is half of our emissions in this country are from farming. And farming is full of entrenched interests. It's got this interesting combination of huge multinational conglomerates who get what they want and um, little people who live together on the family farm and have been doing that for 100 years and it's their way of life and by crikey they're pretty hard to expect to change. Somehow or other we probably can't keep running dairy farms like we do. I think the number of cows we have in New Zealand is roughly the equivalent to 90 million human beings pissing and shitting in our countryside. That's a lot of nitrous oxide, it's a lot of germs into the rivers, it's a lot of CO2, it's a lot of everything. And I know farmers say they make the greenest, best stuff that's in the in the world, but it's sorry that argument might have worked twenty years ago, but it's not good enough any longer. 
It's the uncoupling of the environmental and economic battle, isn't it? Here it's farming and you look across the ditch and it's fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. And bringing it back to a health level, the network wrote an article for our magazine last year which looked at the obstacles and challenges of trying to make change to more sustainable practices at the DHB level, particularly with management which may be resistant. And when, like we are discussing, cost is often a priority. What is some advice you would give to those who are listening and are pushing for changes besides just continuing to persevere? Continuing to persevere is a really big thing. If you can continue to persevere, you're doing really bloody well because it's the system is not there to help you persevere. So anybody who's continuing to persevere, I think, has um, my full support. I think it really helps if you pick something pretty small to start with. So instead of deciding you're going to fix car parking, it's best to start by fixing the things that you have the most control over. You can gather some data on it. And you can change it and you can talk people into it. The people who know you at work and will trust you, it's amazing the lengths they'll go to for you to support you in your mission. Uh, I'm blown away by what colleagues will do for colleagues uh, in medicine. It's really cool. So persistence is a lot. Gathering data is, is really important. Getting people on your side. You know, if, if all of your colleagues say it's a dumb idea, even if it's a great idea, you probably can't make them change. Educate people. Try not to humiliate them or naming and shaming. It's so tempting, but it doesn't really help. So we know there's an irrefutable link between climate change events such as heat waves and floods and negative impacts on human health. We know that climate change harms the vulnerable members of our society the most, including children, the elderly, people with chronic disease and low income groups. How can we embed improved equity in the changes we make to reduce our carbon footprint? First of all, we have to agree on what equity would be and then keep measuring it and keep going from there. In 1983 or 1984, I got a lecture from Peter Davis, who was Helen Clark's partner. And his he was an epidemiologist, I think. And his the, the talks he gave were about dental caries. And it took me 20 years to realize that actually what he was doing was really cool, was saying, if you've got holes in your teeth, you're probably poor. And it might be just easier to look at kids and go, hmm, those have got holes in their teeth. They're not, they don't have the same equitable start that those other kids who've had, the, who, who had their teeth cleaned and had fluoride in their toothpaste and everything else, and they've got all their teeth. So, you know, if it's dental caries or whatever, I don't care what it is, but come up with a, a measurement of equity would be a starting point. Make sure it's in those vulnerable groups would be a, a good place to go. And then, uh, yeah, keep working, keep keep measuring that's what people's job has to be is is achieving these things um you know for you and me it's safely giving an anesthetic and, and parking the patient in the recovery room for a hospital manager it might be balancing the budget but in the past it's just been balancing a financial budget now it has to be balancing a carbon budget you got to make people's jobs depend on it and now in terms of recent advocacy can you tell us all about the use of nitrous oxide in childbirth which has been an issue you've been trying to raise awareness on including with midwives Sure. There was a webinar run by ANSCA on uh, nitrous oxide and the place of nitrous oxide and, and what, what to do about nitrous oxide. And nitrous oxide is this long-lived greenhouse gas. It's also uh, an ozone depleter. So it's a, it's not a great thing. In New Zealand, most of it actually comes from animals. 90% of New Zealand's nitrous oxide footprint is from animals. That's not how it should be in Australia. That fraction, I think, is 4%. But nitrous oxide is, a, is something that's under our control, or it has been. Maybe anesthesia has fallen out of love with it. Even the anaesthetists who do a lot of kids 
It's amazing what they can do with that nitrous oxide. The problem comes when you use a lot of it. The various members of the of the network have been trying to measure their Intonox footprints from childbirth around the country, which has been really interesting. Uh, quite challenging because it's hard to get the data. It's not all piped to delivery units, for instance, so it might be being shared around the hospital. A lot of us have come up with numbers that are in the same ballpark. For every child born in my hospital, at Minimal Hospital, every child born is releasing nearly 300 kilograms of CO2 equivalent um, from Intonox. So that's driving a car 2,000 kilometers. So if you told mum, you, look, you're going to have your baby, you've got some pain relief options, but one of them involves a business class ticket to Sydney, but not back again, or driving a car 2,000 kilometers, you know, is that the world you want for your child? We could talk about that. Uh, it's a pretty awful thing to load onto women some sort of climate guilt thing, but it's probably something that women need to start to learn about. And no doubt you'll produce some podcasts for women or something that will start to inform them of this. At the same time as it's being this terrible pollutant, I think it's got some amazing factors or there's some amazing things about nitrous. You know, women can be given something to hold on to and they can bloody well be in charge of it. And that Intonox is a is a godsend for some people. Um, it's under women's control. It's incredibly safe. Has been up until now, anyway. Cheap. Uh, it's a it's a great thing that I don't think we should be taking away from people. But it is worth thinking about the environmental side of it. There's also what midwives are doing, which I think they, some of them have forgotten that they're no longer dealing with a natural product. It's the stuff that comes out of the Intonox pipe isn't good for them in the long term, and they're probably being exposed in a way that they'd rather not be. I think midwives need help or need to be reminded of, of what's happening in their little part of the world because they're, at the moment, grossly overstretched and understaffed and, and they're busy trying to just do their jobs. But actually, I'm, I'm worried that they're getting hurt. If you were a vegan young midwife, you know, maybe a bit B12 deficient and you're pregnant, early days of pregnancy, and now you're sitting in a room filled with nitrous oxide for hour on end, I don't think you'd want to know. Uh, well, no. You want to know. I don't think you'd want to be there. So the really cool thing is that there is technology that lets us mitigate this, that lets us scavenge nitrous oxide, suck it away and destroy it. And it's, it seems to be pretty cheap. Uh, it seems to work. It's been going in Sweden for, for a long time. The UK's rolling it out. Australia's looking at it too. And the really cool thing is New Zealand is starting to think about it. And people in the Ministry of Health are realizing that it's a, a thing. And they're realizing the size of the problem. And the network has had a bit of success, I suppose, in um, raising consciousness there. And we're going to keep going until we see nitrous oxide mitigation technology introduced for people who want it. I think that we are all always interested in learning how we can do better with our own personal sustainability practices, both professionally and then also in our personal lives. What are some of the major changes that you've made on a personal front to reduce your own carbon footprint? What I think is that the, the, the sum total of humanity is the total of every individual. So every individual does have um, a role and if you and I do something a little better, the, the world is a better place. I'd rather ride a bike or pay, take public transport. Uh, I don't use my car very much. Um, but I do live in a city where you can take a train and I can ride my bike. So I, I try, to, try to use public transport and those kind of things when I can. 
I would always buy locally, you know, and I think we should because if you want to think of it, it's looking after your fellow New Zealander. That's great, but it's also a great way to reduce carbon miles footprint. Buy local. We don't live in a big house anymore. We live in a smaller place. Kind of tried to downside of our lives. You know, try not to consume. We don't go without. There are some things I don't want to give up. I like dairy products. I love cheese. We don't eat meat every day, but I love meat. But I do think that the biggest changes we can make are about making the system better rather than expecting virtue from individuals. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Small things that you do on a personal level do make a small difference and you don't have to have it perfect all the time for that difference to be tangible. No, I don't know. Absolutely not. I don't know anybody's perfect all the time, but it sure as hell isn't me. Yeah, you can choose to ride your bike to work, but also not be vegan, and you're still making a positive difference in the world with those choices. So I guess my final question to you is a bit of a philosophical one. The sustainability of the healthcare system can feel like an overwhelming problem that is just too big to reverse now. How can we stay motivated and positive when it can seem like such an uphill battle? Well... The old fuckers are going to die, right? They're the worst. You know, honestly, some of the people who you're never going to help or never fix or never get them to come to the party, they're going to die. And one day the world will be run by the young people and they get it. And all we need to do is reduce the voting age and hand over to them um, when they're ready for it, rather than keep getting people who don't know better making the same old dumb decisions. So I think bring on the youth. They're not passive, but I think as soon as you become passive, It is depressing and overwhelming, and maybe I'm not sure which comes first, but it really helps to have somebody who thinks the same way you do and will tell you when you've had a bad day at whatever the battle is you're fighting that it's all right. Have another go tomorrow. Join up with other people who want to do the same thing. That's why if you're into this, you should join the NZSA Environmental and Sustainability Network because it's full of awesome people who feel the same way who, when you finish talking to any of them, you feel better. You do. I feel better from having spoken to you today. Thank you so much for your time and giving us so many things to think about, but also some tangible ideas as well as some potential hope for Health New Zealand, as it sounds like there are some fantastic pockets of work going on across the motu and potentially a more national approach might yield more success. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. Well, you've just let me rant, you see, so it's very decompressing. And now we will circle back to Dr. Sheila Hart, President of the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists, to hear what we are looking forward to for the rest of 2022 here at the NZSA. So as we move into 2022, um, the challenges are going to continue with COVID, as I'm sure you are all experienced at at present. But for the society, we have a a few things on our agenda that we want to try and uh, tick off for this year. In April, we have our strategy day planned, and this is where we will look at the future direction for the society over the coming years. Of course, that may uh, be affected by COVID like many of our uh, events are, but we will do our best. One aspect that we would really like to focus on this year is increasing the number of educational resources we have on our website for members. And we're going to start with some part three educational resources targeting, obviously, our trainees as they transition from their final year of training into SMO. We've also recently partnered um, with Ovio to offer some wellbeing initiatives for our members. Wellbeing is clearly a big area that we need to focus on without duplicating the efforts of other organisations. An ongoing issue for this year will be maintaining our membership base and ensuring that we maintain our relevance for our members. That is where we rely on your feedback. And of course, we'll continue to work closely with the New Zealand National Committee, continuing to advocate for anaesthesia as a specialty to ensure that we're well represented when it comes to 
health policy and that our community continues to grow. And of course, expanding our new podcast platform with a range of episodes to keep you up to date with anaesthesia and connected with the anaesthesia community in Aotearoa. What an exciting and busy year ahead. I'm Dr. Morgan Edwards, NZSA Vice President. Thank you so much for joining me on this, our first podcast. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. Matewa.